Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with and hears their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I am your host, Rich Lumello. My guest today was a three-time NBA scoring champ. He was a two-time NBA champion as a player. In 1973, he was the Rookie of the Year, and in 1975, he was the league MVP. A lot of other things, a lot of other accomplishments to talk about also, uh, but I thought that this kind of summed up everything. There's a quote from Sports Illustrated. He is the quickest tall man, the finest shooter, and the most outstanding scoring machine to ever play basketball. Ladies and gen- gentlemen, welcome to Chasing Hardware, Mr. Bob McAdoo. Bob, welcome to Chasing Hardware. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, look, Bob, I, I look forward to kind of talking about, you know, your, you know, growing up in North Carolina and your college years, your pro years. I thought I'd start off by just saying you're from Greensboro, Greensboro. North Carolina. Uh, you went to Ben Smith High School. Yeah. <clears throat> you played basketball. You ran track where you were a high jumper. You were also in the marching band as a saxophonist. Yeah. Uh, and I, I noticed that you, you, had, uh, you led your basketball team and your track team to the semifinals in the state. And you actually won the state high jump title. Uh, beating out a guy by the name of Bobby Jones, who would figure into your life a number yeah. of times down the road. Tell, yeah. tell me about high school and growing up in Greensboro, North Carolina. Well, growing up in Greensboro was definitely something that, uh, you know, everybody should have experienced in life. You know, I came through uh, integration uh, and busing in the 60s. Uh, I had always been in uh, black schools. And then the busing thing happened in about 65 and I was bus or wasn't bus, but I was near a white school and they transferred me to from the uh, black school to the white school and uh, the white school turned 100% black after three days because whites didn't want to go to school with us. So that was an interesting part of my life right there. Um, and by the time I finished the ninth grade, uh, they didn't have forced busing. We had the choice of where we wanted to go to high school. So uh, uh, me and a couple of other players in the middle schools around the city that knew each other, we decided to try our luck at Ben L. Smith, which was a white school. So we went there and we turned them, it was, you know, pretty new school in the city. Um, in the 4A was one of the largest schools. Uh, we turned them, you know, with all the black students that came through, we turned them into a powerhouse uh, in football and basketball right away, you know, with the influx of the uh, black athletes and stuff. 
So uh, basketball-wise, uh, you know, like I said, we got, like you said in the introduction, we got to the semifinals of the states and uh, high jump. Uh, I won the state against Bobby Jones, who ended up being a teammate of mine and ended up having a great career with the Denver Nuggets and the Philadelphia 76ers and made the Hall of Fame. So we, we kind of intersected. Uh, we became teammates at the University of North Carolina and, uh, you know, got drafted and the rest is a little bit of history. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so so when you so two things real fast about Fayetteville, so for or, or Greensboro rather. So first of all, uh, your your mother is in the Fayetteville State Hall of Fame as a basketball player. Yes. Uh, so you come by your basketball skills honestly. <laughs> yeah, which I didn't know. I didn't know till I was about twelve or thirteen that she even played basketball. She she never said anything. I I saw a picture once of her in a basketball uniform, but I. I thought that was intramural or something, but it was the real deal. She played college basketball. And like you said, she made the Fable State Hall of Fame. Wow. And your father worked at North Carolina A&T and would take you over to watch football games and basketball games. And one of the guys who you went and watched one time was Winston-Salem's Earl the Pearl Monroe. He yes. became your idol. Yes. And, and we'll get to it later on, but you then play with him down the road. How cool yes. was that? That was very cool. I mean, when we used to go to the games uh, to see Winston-Salem State play North Carolina a and I mean, the, the, the gyms were packed in Greensboro to see him and the CIAA tournament because he was such a phenomenal player, you know, averaging 40 points a game in college. He was, he had moves that you had never seen before in basketball. He was spinning and twirling and shot faking and, you know, nobody could stop him. And, you know, after the games, you know, everybody would be in the park trying to emulate Earl, the Pearl Monroe. You right. know, he, he was everybody's hero growing up because of his game. That's, that's so cool. Um, and then, and then it's time for college. And you end up going to Vincennes Junior College out in Indiana. I guess yeah. my first question is, how did you choose Vincennes? And then and we'll talk about Vincennes for a second before getting on to North Carolina. How'd you choose Vincennes? I don't even know myself. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I know UCLA was recruiting me hard and I needed a higher score on my SAT. Uh, my regular grades were good. I had a B plus average, but my SAT wasn't up to par. So I saw I could go to a lower or mid-level division one, which I did not really want to do. I wanted to play big time basketball or I could go to junior college. So uh, Vincennes was the last place that I visited. Uh, Jerry Reynolds, who ended up being an NBA coach and NBA executive in Sacramento, he was one of the guys who came and recruited me. And it was the last visit I made. I went up there, uh, Vincent, didn't know where it was. They never even heard of it. Uh, went up there and, you know, at during those days, you know, we put on our stuff and we'd scrimmage with the guys that were there. And as I scrimmaged with the guys that were there, I said, man, these guys are really good. So 
I decided, I figured I'd be at Vincennes one year and I'd make my transfer to UCLA. So I ended up signing with Vincennes and I just remember all the ridicule I got back at home, you know, people, because people in North Carolina, they didn't know what Vincennes was. Uh, they heard it was a junior college, but they had never heard of it. And uh, I went up there and it turned out being the best thing that I could have done. The only thing that happened was we ended up winning the national championship uh, my first year at Vincennes in Hutchinson, Kansas. And uh, we had about 10 high school All-Americans on that team. It was unbelievable. Um, and all of us wanted to transfer after one year. All of us had to have 3.0 averages, but the majority of us had 2.9s. So we couldn't transfer, uh, which was you know, a little disappointing to all of us, but uh, we said, look, we've won the national championship. Let's see if we can, you know, run this back to back. So we decided, you know, plus our recruiting class was really good. You know, we ended up getting some players, you know, Foots Walker came in from Long Island who ended up being an NBA player for about 10 years. He came in. So we, you know, we had a, we had a better team the second year, but we didn't win. We got upset in the regionals and we didn't win. So um, what happened, North Carolina, UNC ended up coming into the picture after my second year. So it was between uh, UCLA and North Carolina. Uh, I met John Lotz, I met Coach Dean Smith. Uh, one of the factors that kind of pushed me over to North Carolina was my father, uh, was getting sickly and I knew he'd have a problem getting on a plane, uh, getting all the way to Los Angeles to see me play. So I ended up going to UNC, which is 48 miles, you know, Chapel Hill's 48 miles from Greensboro. And I ended up going there, which, you know, I missed out on winning the national championship. We got to the final four, but UCLA won the championship that year. But if I'd have been to UCLA, I'd have been teaming with Jamal Wilkes, Bill Walton, and Henry Bibby, a host of players, but that's okay. That's that's the way it goes. Uh, but and as it was, as it was at North Carolina, you played with George Carl, and you met up with Bobby Jones again. Bobby Jones, the, uh, Bill Chamberlain, Dennis Weissick. We had a we had a great team. We got to the Final Four, and we ended up losing a close game to Florida State in the semifinals. And uh, well, let me go back before I got to North Carolina. Sure. After Vincennes, uh, I got invited to the uh, Pan American Games, which was uh, um, like 75 college guys from all Division One, Division Two, junior colleges uh, were invited. And out of those 75, I was one of the 10 or 12 that made the team. And uh, we ended up playing uh, exhibition games against a couple of pro teams against the Atlanta Hawks. And I think I had a 29 point game against the Atlanta Hawks. And one of my homeboys who was an all-star Lou Hudson came up to me and said, man, you, you got the game to play in the NBA. I hadn't even thought about that at that time, but because he said it, because I had such a good, good game, 
I started thinking about the NBA at that time from the Pan American games, but uh, I wasn't going to leave uh, because they kind of projected at that time because I was unknown, you know, player, uh, except for the colleges, they figured I'd be between 22 and 28 if the draft came out as a sophomore. So, you know, I decided I was going to go to North Carolina anyway. Uh, so I went to North Carolina, I met Dean, loved him. He was fantastic man. Uh, all the, you know, Coach Guthridge, John Lotz, they were just incredible. And uh, I was going to be close to home. Uh, I ended up playing at North Carolina. Right. And you, you played the year, like you said, you guys go to the final four, you lose to Florida State. Mm -hmm. And then um, you decide to go with Dean's blessing, you decide to go hardship and declare yeah. for the NBA uh, with yeah. still with one year of eligibility. Yeah. Was that a tough conversation with coach or did he just say, hey, this is something you've got to do? It was a tougher conversation with my mother. <laughs> uh, Coach Smith came right out and said, look, Bob, if they, I understand it was a new thing then. Only a few players had, you know, gone hardship. And, uh, you know, Dean said, Bob, if, if they're going to offer you X, X, X amount of money, you know, I'd take it too. So I, I had Coach Smith's blessing. The person I had to convince was my mother. My mother was an educator. She wanted me to stay and finish school. And uh, after we had talks with the NBA team, I kind of saw what I was going to make. And uh, my mother said, kept on saying no. Uh, the thing that changed my mind, my father took me back to his bedroom and he showed me his check stubs from his work and he says, he showed it to me. He said, son, it'll take me 10 years to make the money that you're gonna make in one year. That made my decision right there. So right. my mother was angry with me for a year till I started, you know, redoing the kitchen and doing some curtains in the house. She, she kinda, she was still pissed, but she, uh, you know, she kinda came over to my side uh, because, it wasn't like it is now, you know, right. lottery picks, uh, they make a big show out of it. It just wasn't like that in 1972. And uh, they just didn't have a clue. Um, I mean, the money is nowhere close to where it is now, but it's, you know, you still made more than the average American <laughs> at sure. that time. So, uh, you know, it, it was easy to, after my father showed me his check stub, yeah, it was an easy decision for me. Right. Yeah. I just exactly. hated, I just hated the one thing I I missed was going to the 72 Olympics. Um, me, Jim Jones, Brian Taylor, who were on that Pan American team, all of us were juniors. Uh Brian was at Princeton, uh, Jimmy Jones was at Marquette, and we we talked. And they, they told me they were leaving. So we decided to leave. All three of us would have been on that 72 Olympic team. Uh, and I think all three of us kind of missed that because we that was the first year we ever lost the game. And the Olympic team didn't have three of uh, their best collegians on that team because the three of us left to um, for hardship to go to the pros. Right. That, of course, being the team that 
had that very kind of controversial ending mm-hmm. with the Russians mm-hmm. and never did collect their silver medal, just decided no. you can keep it. No. Now that's interesting. That's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so, you, so you get drafted in the first round, number two overall. You go to the Buffalo Braves, which is basically in their second or third year of existence, and they're a struggling expansion team. Yeah. Um, you come in as Jack Ramsey is coming in, future Hall of Fame coach. Yeah. And in the first year, you're not starting for the first half of the year, but then he starts to put you out there more and you become the rookie of the year. What was the transition like to the pros? The transition was, uh, it wasn't as hard as I thought it was. Uh, Jack was one of these old time coaches. He didn't believe in starting uh, rookies, even though my talent, you know, I showed in training camp that I was uh, the best player on the team. You know, I was just gonna have to wait my turn. And I think my turn came up quicker because our all-star power forward, Bob Kaufman, got hurt in December. I was averaging like about six points, you know, playing minimum minutes, 10, 15 minutes a game. And he got hurt and Jack inserted me into the lineup. And from December to April, as a rookie, I averaged like probably like 33, 34 points a game. And uh, I think that really opened up the management's eyes of, wow, we didn't know this guy could do this. And uh, before I came back for my second year, they changed the whole team around to accommodate me. They moved me to center. Uh, They ended up trading Elmo Smith and they put other pieces, other forwards around me, Garfield Hurd, Jim McMillan, uh, Randy Smith came into his own. They drafted Ernie DiGregorio and we had a much better team uh, my second year uh with me moved from power forward i not only played power forward i played small forward and power forward uh whereas in high school and college i was strictly uh a center you know a little power forward i was a stretch four stretch five that's what i was but they put me jack put me exclusively at center when he changed the team around and that right. made that made us that made us go and that team it was fascinating to look at every year that team just got better and better. You know, yeah. all of a sudden you make the playoffs, then, you know, kind of two or three years later, you, you win in the first round in the playoffs. And like you just pointed out, all of a sudden you have Ernie DiGregorio, you have Randy Smith who never missed a game in like 10 years. I mean, it's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. When you look at his stats. Um, and then you start to become a, you know, a, a 30, 15 guy. You're, you're, yeah. 48 years later, you're still the last guy to score 30 points a year and average 15 rebounds in a year. Is that uh, right? I didn't know that. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's been it's been 48 years. Nobody yeah. uh, nobody has averaged 30, 15. Yeah. Uh, but you guys are starting to, you know, to, you know, get into the playoffs and you're starting to make some noise. Um, you win three straight scoring titles. You're the MVP in 1975. Um, and it's it's fascinating because. The owner, um, Paul Schneider. Paul Schneider. Paul Schneider uh, owns the team, but Buffalo is kind of you're in competition with not only the Sabers in hockey, but also Canisius College, mm-hmm. and he's he's kind of finding himself not always getting the times and slots he wants at the old Odd Arena, and ultimately, Paul Schneider enters into an agreement with John Y. Brown. Yeah. You kind of co-own the team. 
Which was a disaster. Which was a disaster. I'm sure and, he looks back at it now and says that was a disaster. Yeah. Yeah, because all of a sudden, John Y. Brown, in, in the need to pay off Snyder, you guys need to start getting rid of assets and bringing in cash. And by yeah. assets, players. So yeah. all of a sudden, good, you know, Jim McMillan is, is traded away. And then ultimately, you're traded away. Jack Ramsey sees what's happening and decides it's time to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the, the craziest thing is your last year in Buffalo, you have Moses Malone on the roster for two games at the beginning of the season. You've got, you know, obviously Ernie DiGregorio and Randy Smith. Um, you've Adrian, got Adrian Dantley. Adrian Dantley. So you've got three guys who in the span of like four or five years are the rookie of the year. You've got Moses Malone. I mean, it's unbelievable talent. And yet they start dismantling the team almost immediately. Tell me about that experience. That experience was another horror story for me um, because I was going to my fifth year, which is my last year, John Y. Brown came in and I remember a conversation. We had a conversation. um, He brought me in. And he told me he didn't want me scoring all those points anymore. And I'm looking at him like, mm, what do you mean? That's, that's what I do. Um, he, pro- he probably cost me winning four straight championships, scoring championships. But uh, we had a new coach, Tate Slot, who was a college coach at Clemson. And he came in and uh, I guess he followed the directions of John Y. Brown. You know, they started playing me like, 25 minutes a game uh, to hold down my scoring because it was also done to, you know, shut down my production because they didn't know, you know, I was, you know, one of the top three players in the league and, you know, free agency, you were going to have to pay me. So John Y. Brown's way, which was really ridiculous, and it was really ridiculous on Takes Lock. I know Takes Lock had to follow orders, but he um, contributed to his own demise. You don't put a 30 point, would you put Kevin Durant and make him play 25 minutes or Harden or Curry when you look at today's game? It didn't, it didn't make any sense. Um, and for Takes Lock, the coach, it surely didn't help his situation because how, how are you gonna win playing me 25 minutes a game? You're doing that just to cut down my production. So that was a ridiculous thing that was happening to me in the last year of my contract and for the Buffalo team. Yeah. I mean, this is a team that had gone from 20 wins over the course of two or three years. Now, all of a sudden you were at 49 wins. You're, you know, you're, you're starting to move into that next echelon. And at that very moment, they decide to start sitting you more and start getting rid of, you know, some of their top players. Yeah. Um, yeah, crazy. And, and I am curious, I know it's amazing when you look at the stats, Moses Malone was on that team for two games. He played six minutes. He didn't score a point. Do you have any, you know, kind of memories of, of him being around or was it so quick that. It was, it was so quick, but I mean, we, we, we knew, you know, you could see the talent there and we say, look, we got a young team. Uh, this high school kid is really good. Uh, Adrian was good. You know, I was good. Randy. I mean, we had the firepower to deal with the top teams in the East at that time, which was uh, Boston Celtics and the Washington Bullets at that time. But they didn't, 
they didn't keep us together. They ended up trading all of us, which was, you know, not only was bad for the team, it ended up being bad for the franchise. The franchise ended up moving a couple of years later. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I, I want to get into that for a second. So, so John Y. Brown takes over the Braves. He's having a fire sale, getting rid of, of his best players. Um, similar at, at the same time, Irv Levin is in Boston owning the Celtics and he wants to move to Southern California, but obviously the league's not going to let the Celtics move to Southern California. David Stern is not the commissioner. He's general counsel, but he's seen in the NFL when Rosenblum and Ursay swap the Colts and the Rams, he mm-hmm. sees that it can be done. So he effectively gets Levin and John Y. Brown to swap teams, um, Celtics and Braves. And I might be simplifying it, but they do that. And that basically is the death knell for Buffalo basketball, because now yeah. Buffalo is going to move to San Diego. And that's yeah. when they become the Clippers. Yeah. But the interesting thing there is now John Brown, John Y. Brown is in Boston. Now, in the meantime, you get traded to the Knicks. Yeah. And this is this is one of those times, and this happens over and over again in your career where you're coming into a situation where they're on the decline. They're, you know, they had been good three years ago and now they're on the decline. Mm-hmm. And you walk into a locker room, you know, loaded with stars, right? Pearl Monroe, like we talked about, and Walt Frazier. Aging stars. Aging star, exactly. And Walt Frazier and Pearl Monroe. But these are obviously kind of the last couple of Bill Bradley. These are the last years of their career, basically. So you go into New York. What was that situation like for you? It was it was difficult. It was a difficult thing because I was uh, now was on a team with Asian superstars. Uh, Bradley was there. Phil Jackson was there. Earl Monroe, uh, Walt Frazier. So those were a couple of holdovers from that Nick championship team. But you know they were they were basically on their last leg, and uh, talent-wise, it was different for me because in Buffalo I was with the fastest guy in the league with Randy Smith. I was with the best passer in the league with Ernie D. Gurriel. So I had guards that could move, that could pass, and you know these aging guards, uh, they were shoot first, pass second guards. So that's what I had to get adjusted to right away. And of course, you know, Spencer Haywood was there. Spencer was, uh, was an all-star superstar in Seattle. So, you know, you had to figure out how you were going to get that ball because Earl Monroe had to have it, Walt Frazier had to have it, and Spencer Haywood had to have it. And of course, I had to have it. I had won three straight championships. So, you know, how are we going to negotiate this? And you know, surprisingly, surprisingly, we uh, we 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 did it. You know, we had a we we ended up being a pretty good team. I mean, we weren't first. I think we were second behind the Philadelphia 76ers, where uh, they had put together a good team with Julius Irvin, George McGinnis, Daryl Dawkins, Doug Collins, World Be Free. I mean, they had a very good team. So we were behind them. Uh, but New York, they only stuck with our team for two years, and then they started having a fire sale in New York too. Right. What was it like for you? You come in and you're playing for Red Holtzman, obviously legendary coach. Then Willis Reed, the captain. It, you know, all of a sudden he becomes the coach. 
So you're kind of playing the position that he had played through mm-hmm. those championship years. What was it like playing for a guy like that who, you know, kind of 10 minutes ago was a superstar and now he's your coach? That it was not good. You know, Willis did a, a great job. You know, him and I mean, Red was, you know, ready to retire. Uh, then I think Willis left because, uh, you know, if you're not 82 and 0 in New York, you know, the press is pissed off. Uh, so Willis left and Red Holzman came back and he, he just filled the seat for the rest of the season because he knew, you know, it was just a matter of time before he, he was ready to go. Uh, right. The team was, you know, like I said, we, we were good because we had talent. We didn't have that talent that would take us over the top. Because like I said, we had aging guards, you know, who were superstars. So it was kind of left for me and uh, Spencer. Uh, Lonnie Shelton was there, uh, which by the way, they ended up trading all three of us and all three of us frontline guys. I mean, we got championships in other places. Me and Spencer got championships in uh, LA. Uh, Lonnie got his championship in Seattle. There was another situation where they didn't wait for the team to jail. They brought in Ray Williams, Michael Ray Richardson, who were good young guards. Uh, they, they, didn't, they didn't wait. They just started. They had a fire sale in New York, too. Right. Yeah. And what was it like? So, you know, going back to what we talked about at the beginning, all of a sudden you're in the locker room with Pearl Monroe. Now, at this point, you're an established star. You've been the MVP. So it's not like you're some awestruck kid. No. But still, you walk in the locker room and there's Pearl Monroe. <laughs> what, yeah. what, was, you know, what were those conversations like? What was it like playing with him? It was, it was great. You know, I mean, he, I told him uh, where I grew up and watching him. And, you know, it was an honor. And it was. It was an honor playing with him and Walt Frazier. You know, Walt was a star. Uh, Earl, of course, had been a star since I was uh, eighth grader in middle school, you know, watching him. So it, it, it was an honor being on the same. And, and then even with Spencer, because Spencer was a young player and I had seen him win his gold medal at the Olympics. So, you know, I mean, it was, it was a team full of guys that had a lot of stuff on their resume. So it, 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 was, it was a pleasure to me. And, uh, and of course, playing in New York, that was, you know, the Southern boy, small town, you know, playing in New York, you know, I had to get adjusted to that, but that's okay because, you know, I was, I was strictly into the basketball, you know, the basketball was what I was focused on, but going back to your question, you know, with Earl Monroe, it was, it was just fantastic seeing him after seeing him on the court at Winston-Salem State and seeing him on TV. And now I'm on the court, same court with him when they introduced him to starting five was just a pleasure for me. Yeah, that's cool. And, but, so the team is struggling a little bit though. And so the end of the 79 season, they trade you to the Celtics. So now you're going back with John Y. Brown. um, (laughs) (laughs) Who's, who's now taken, you know, he's the owner of the Celtics. Um, you get traded for three number ones, the only one of which panned out was Bill Cartwright. And the Celtics, just like the Knicks, are a team in transition, that yeah. kind of early 70s team that had won a couple of titles with Havlicek and Paul Silas and Don Nelson. They're gone. Um, and so, again, it's a team in transition. Dave, Dave Counts was the player coach, right? Yeah, Dave was the player coach. 
uh, Cedric Maxwell, Curtis Rowe, uh, Tiny Archibald, Chris Ford. I'm trying to remember. I can't remember the guy. I think Havlicek was gone. Okay, yeah, Havlicek was gone. Silas was gone too, right? Silas was gone too, yeah. So, yeah, so the championship team were gone. Okay. So now what I heard was that, uh, or what I've read was that John Y. Brown tr- acquires you, but doesn't tell uh, Dave Cowens, the coach, or Red Auerbach, or the Red general manager. Yeah. So, so all of a sudden you're coming into a situation where Dave Cowens is the player coach and plays your position and mm-hmm. isn't expecting you to come in. So what was, you know, what was that like walking in that locker room? That was, well, it, first of all, it took a while. Once the trade was made, I didn't automatically go to Boston because my agent at the time, because we were going back to John Y. Brown, who everybody thought was a shady character. Uh, I had, I was owed a lot of deferred money in uh, New York and they wanted to make sure my deferred money was before I moved to Boston was guaranteed by Golf and Weston who owned the Knicks instead of Boston Inc. Because John Y. Brown had come from the ABA and he was known for stiffing players, not paying people. And now we, we, we saw what he did with me in Buffalo uh, and just reading reports, you know, he was married to Phyllis George. Phyllis George, the uh, CBS commentator, I think she was CBS. She, I was her favorite player. And she well, former wanted, Miss America, by the way. Miss America, yeah. She yeah. wanted me on that team. And he ended up, he ended up after not wanting to pay me in Buffalo, you know, I got, you know, the contract I wanted in New York. And when they traded me, that contract was transferred over to Boston. But my agent wanted the, the back end, the deferred money owed to me by Nick, the Knicks, Gulf and Western. So they had to work that out uh, a week before I got there. Uh, then, I, you know, what you just said to me was true. Uh, Red Arback and Cowens didn't know the deal was made. So, and, you know, Boston and Buffalo, we had some ferocious contests. You know, I mean, I must have averaged 40 points a game against them and Cowens. And, uh, you know, when I got, when I finally got there, I think I was, I was third in scoring. I was behind George Gervin and David Thompson. And I get there and I guess to show their displeasure over the deal without going through them, you know, uh, first game, they tried to put me in with three minutes to go and I refused to do it. I said, you're going to have problems. I let them know they were going to have problems with me because I I wasn't going to, you know, what I had done in the league up to that point. I wasn't going to put up, you know, you can play that political game, but somebody else don't play that political game. I'm not, I'm not doing that. We're going to have a problem. Yeah. That's amazing. So in your first game with them, they tried, they sit you the whole game and then they tried to stick stick me in with three minutes to go on a losing team at that. So I I refused to go in. So they, they knew, they knew they were going to have a problem with me. And, uh, you know, I, I had a conversation with my father, you know, who was old school all the way. Um, I tried to tell my father, when I, when I heard of the trade and was made, I told my father how I did not want to go to Boston because I, you know, I knew about Boston's racial situation from just looking at stories from Bill Russell, Sam Jones, and the 
few black players that were up there, you know, they didn't really like it. And I, I you know, from players who had been there, uh, we knew black players around the new knew that Boston was the graveyard for black players. Once you got traded from Boston, they bad mouthed you so bad. Your reputation was nothing after you left Boston. And we knew that. And I told my father that and my father <laughs> looked at me in my eye. He said, son, are you getting your check on the first and 15th? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, you get your ass up there. My father, because I didn't, I didn't want to go. I really didn't want to go. And uh, I ended up, you know, taking my father's, you know, advice again and ended up going. And this is what happened to me the first game. Three, they're yeah. going to try to put a three-time scoring champion, going to try to put me in the game with three minutes to go. And I, I wasn't going for that. It's almost like they were trying to send a message to the owner through yeah. you. And yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I remember uh, reading Tommy Heinsohn quoted, he said when they built the tunnel and named it the Ted Williams Tunnel uh, out to the airport, I remember his quote was uh, speaking about Bill Russell. He says, the guy wins 11 titles, coaches us to two, and they named the fucking tunnel after Ted Williams. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, he's, right. Yeah. he's right. I mean, just I'm just hearing you say that. That yeah. is right. That, is, that doesn't make any sense. He's the greatest winner in team sports in the world. Right. You know, why wouldn't you name a tunnel or arena or highway or something, a brick after him? You know, right. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Any That's sense. not to take anything away from Ted Williams, but. No, it's not taking it. But yeah, yeah. he doesn't have a record. He doesn't right. have a record to Bill Russell. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So, and then, and then this part's fascinating to me because this plays into like arguably the best rivalry in sports history. Detroit, the Detroit Pistons, obviously your stay in Boston is, is not all that long. No. Uh, the Detroit Pistons uh, send ML Carr to Boston. And as part of the compensation, you're sent to Detroit, right? Mm -hmm. And with it, a number of uh, uh, Detroit is sending to Boston, a number one pick. Yeah. So you end up in Detroit and we'll yeah. talk about that in a second. Boston gets this number one pick. Now, in the draft that year, first of all, they they bring in Bill Fitch to be the coach and they draft Larry Bird. Mm -hmm. And then they take this number one pick that they've gotten from Detroit and they trade it out to Golden State. Golden State takes Joe Barry Carroll. Boston picks Kevin McHale. And in that trade, they also get Robert Parrish. Mm -hmm. So we'll leave that there for now. And we'll talk about Detroit. But clearly, I built I built I built the Celtic dynasty. And then you beat them <laughs> <laughs> later on. <laughs> that's, that's the whole point I'm getting to. That's I'm, yeah. it's like my favorite part of this. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Yeah, so you go to Detroit and that's just a tough situation because once again, recurring theme, they've got like seven rookies, they've got three second year guys, and then yeah. you and Bob Lanier. Yeah. And yeah, Dick Vitale is the coach and Vitale is a wonderful sports broadcaster. Yeah. It was, but, it was, it was impossible situation for us you know when i got there in training camp i told bob i said bob are you kidding me seven rookies two second year players we're not going to get a single call from the refs i mean that's just the way it is young players you gotta go through trial and error before you even respected by your peers by the referees 
I knew that was going to happen. Bob didn't know that that was going to happen. He said, Bob, give it a chance. Don't be so negative. I said, Bob, look, I've been on Buffalo. I've been on New York. I've been on Boston. I've been on three teams already. Detroit's been your only team. You've been Mr. Detroit. You don't know. I see what's coming down the pipe. No, no, Bob. Wait and see. Mid-season, Bob gets traded to Milwaukee. He wants out. Because <laughs> we, we, we couldn't win. I mean, Dick did as much as he could. But, it, you know, Dick was uh, a, a college coach. And he came into this situation. I mean, he, he didn't have a chance to win because we, we didn't have the talent. I mean, he was loyal to his Detroit players. And that's another thing. He brought three University of Detroit players on a professional team. I looked, I said, mm. I said, if you'd have brought three North Carolina players or three UCLA players, mm, I think about it. But three University of Detroit players, I mean, right. that was a stretch there. Unless it's unless they're named Spencer Haywood. <laughs> unless their name is Spencer Haywood. Yeah. So that 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 was a stretch. That's what I had uh, um a problem with was, but you know, Dick was being loyal to his college guys. And, you know, sometimes that's a, that's a good thing. It was a good thing for him and the players, but it wasn't a good thing for the franchise. Right. Right. And so then, and so then there's, you know, obviously a lot of losing some injuries and you ultimately are sent to the nets at the end of the 80, 81 season. And you play 10 games there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's another team that, you know, they've got young guys like Mike O'Corin and Mike Jaminski, and it seems like they're trying to build something. But at this point, you're not, you're not a 21 year old looking to be a part of a rebuilding no, process. No, no, no. That was, that was another tough situation. You're talking about three straight tough situations for me. You're talking about uh, Boston losing, Detroit losing, uh, New Jersey losing. And it just, it just, my shoulders went from being like this to just right. deflated, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've done everything I can possibly do as a player, but I mean, I'm, I, want to, I want to be a team winner. You know, that's what you're in here for, to try to win championships. And, you know, to have that in Buffalo, I said, we got a chance. I felt we had a chance. In New York, slightly less. In Boston, Detroit, New Jersey, right from the jump, no chance. Right. No chance. That's in your head. Right. And, you know, when you're thinking like that, it's not going to happen. It's going to hurt your performance, too. You know, right. I, I, I just lost some of my mojo uh, being in those situations. So then, so then you're at home. And a guy who you had played with in Buffalo, he was a rookie, I think your rookie year, named Dave Wall from University of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. is now working for the Lakers. Yeah. Mitch Kupchak is their big free agent signing, and he gets hurt. I forget what happens. Maybe he blows his knee or blew, something. Yeah, blew his knee out. Blew his knee out. So Dave Wall, who's now doing work for the Lakers, comes out to you know kind of run you through some drills and see if you've still got it. Yeah. Tell me about that experience. Well... Let's go back. I, I needed a foot operation in Detroit. Okay. Uh, I had a bone spur problem that was giving me major problems 
which was worrying me because I was in the last year of my contract in Detroit, which, you know, that contract transferred over to New Jersey. And once I got to New Jersey, uh, after the season, I, I, I finally, I found a doctor and I told him, hey, I, I can't go on like this. And he said, no problem. I, you know, we can do this. We can get you back out on the court. So I ha had a foot operation and I hadn't played for seven to eight months when Dave came to me to watch me. I was back walking and doing some jogging. And like I said, we, me and Dave were teammates. He was assistant coach in LA to Pat Raleigh. And he seen me, he said, Bob, I, he watched me for 15, 20 minutes. And he said, Bob, I know you can shoot. I played with you. He wanted to see if I can move up and down the court. He watched me for 20 minutes. He wrote it up. He said, I, I'm gonna get him a report. We're gonna try to get you in LA. And it's like, my heart was like, God, if I can get to this team, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic Johnson, uh, Jamal Wilkes, Norm Nixon, Michael Cooper. I said, I gotta, if I can get with that team, I got a chance of possibly winning an NBA championship. And, you know, the negotiations went forward. And uh, I, I guess, you know, they kind of, I don't know, I don't, Jerry West probably was in the middle of this from what I heard. And uh, Jerry had known me from the league and he had seen me as a high school senior in North Carolina. He saw me play against him and uh, in an exhibition game. And uh, we got the contract, one-year deal, and I signed the deal, and I got, got to L.A. That's awesome. And it, so I, I want to say at this point, as I was kind of you know, reading some articles and looking at some different things, I, I couldn't help but think to myself that your, this part of your career kind of is a parallel with the NBA itself in that in the 70s, I mean, clearly a major league and all of that, but by the end of the 70s, um, the NBA finals are being showed on tape delay. I mean, mm. I remember watching the, uh, the Bullets and the Sonics like at 10 o'clock at night and the, you know, the game's over and they're kind of telling you on the evening news, you know, if you want to know the final score, put your hand over the screen. Yeah. Um, and so the NBA is, you know, doing a little bit of this. And obviously you're going through all these teams in transition and, you know, you want to pull your hair out. And then all of a sudden at the NBA level, Magic and Larry come in. Right. And that kind of sets things up for, you know, the next decade on a personal level, you go to Los Angeles and find, you know, the role in the team that's going to change the trajectory of your career. It's just kind of interesting. Like it struck me that the league and you kind of had like a, a similar plane for a while. You know, when you're a player, you're basically focused on uh, your performance. Right. And uh, that's what I was focused on. You know, I had gone through three bad teams, uh, injury, uh, father, I lost my father during that time. It, it was, it was a tough, it was a tough time for me. And, uh, you know, getting to LA with like-minded players, uh, kind of, it, and kind of, it brought me back to life. Right. Uh, it res like you said, it resurrected my career. Uh, and that first year, we won, we won the NBA championship. That was, that was one of the most fantastic feelings uh, in the world to me, uh, being able to play 
in the final series and win that championship, it just kind of, you know, it's almost like, wow, how did I get through Boston, Detroit, New Jersey? Uh, it, was, it was just amazing. I, I couldn't believe it that yeah. you know, I persevered through all of that and got to the Lakers and brought myself and my career back to life. Yeah, and, and it, it's a fascinating run with the Lakers because obviously you've been, you know, the focal point of most of your team's offenses through the years. And on mm -hmm. this one, there's obviously, you know, a lot of talent to go around. Pat Riley has you coming off the bench, which is not something you've ever really done outside of like maybe the first half of your rookie year, but you quickly adjust to the role. And as the playoffs kick in, you've been scoring quite a bit during the regular season anyway. And then you almost double your points per game once the playoffs come around or it goes up like, you know, from 10 to 17 or something like that. What was that part like, you know, kind of taking, taking on a new role, but seeing what it would mean for you and the team. It was difficult. You know, I can, I can tell you now as a 70 year old man, I can talk now. Uh, I didn't like it. I hated it. I hated coming off the bench because I didn't deserve to come off the bench. You know, I was, you know, uh, one of the better players there. And I saw when I was there, we were better when I was out on the court. But, uh, you know, politics enter into everything. You know, I mean, I, I've been the leading scorer on every team I've been on from middle school, high school, junior college, all the pro teams this wouldn't have been any different. You know, I probably would have led this team in scoring and rebounding too. But, you know, the powers that be didn't want that. They wanted to keep it uh, for Magic and Kareem, uh, their team. And, you know, you look back and say, okay, I, I can see the politics of that. It wasn't great for me. It was good for me because I won championship, but it wasn't great for me. I, I thought, I thought, looking back now, they got good for me, but they didn't get great for me. Because when you, you get great, when you know you're playing 37, 40 minutes instead of 15 minutes here, five minutes here, you know, you, you just couldn't get into it. But, you know, I, I mean, I never complained. I mean, I, I went home and complained to my wife. She heard, you know, she heard me, you know, I'm surprised I didn't have a heart attack because it was, that was a major, that was, that was major for me, you know, coming off of that bench. It was something that I hated the whole time, but I did it without complaint. You know, the right. management, the people, they never knew it. But I, like I say, I'm, I'm 70 years old now. I can tell people how I really felt about it. I mean, you know, when you compare stuff, you, you said, what, you know, when you look at the top scores in the league now, like Harden and uh, Curry and Durant, you say, if they got traded somebody, would they bring them off the bench? And it's like, no, nah, I don't think so. Right. It, it happened then. You know, it's just, that's just the way it was. You know, and I, I, didn't, I didn't raise hell about it because I wanted to, I wanted to win a championship. That was, that was, it was, it was bigger than me. I, w I wanted to win a championship. That was it. Yeah. And th there's a great clip of when you guys clinch in 82, you're in the locker room, the champagne's being poured, you and Magic are next to each other. And I think it's Brent Musburger sticks a mic in Magic's face and says, what does it mean to have this guy on the team? And he says, he's an offensive weapon coming off the bench, a big man who can do it all. 
He can run the court. He blocks shots, you know, on top of all the scoring and the rebounding. And it was kind of cool. Like that crystallized it all right there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, uh, you know, I, I, from that performance, uh, even Hubie Brown, I remember Hubie Brown came on and he said, uh, I don't agree with their MVP selection. I think their MVP selection should have been Bob McAdoo. Uh, you know, and you know, I, I could have, but you sure. know, Magic got the MVP in that series. But uh, I was looking beyond that. I said, okay, with this performance, when I come back next year, okay, I, I'm I'm going to be starting. But it never happened. Right, I ended up coming off the bench, second year in LA, third year in LA, fourth year in LA. You know, and you know, uh, that started that started really getting to me. Because it's sure. like I started saying to myself, no matter what I do, I'm not going to start. It's just not going to happen. And, you know, every player, every player, no matter where you start, bitty ball, junior high, high school, you know, you want to start. You know, you know, you hear people say, well, it's not who starts, it's who finishes. Players don't think like that. They don't think like that. Right. They want the best five in the beginning of the game and they want the best five in at the end of the game. That's 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 your mentality. Right. You know, and that kind of got to me, you know, a couple of games. I kind of lost it, you know, because I couldn't take that. But uh, like I said, I, I, I suffered in silence and I got my two championship rings, which, you know, really. Uh, that's what you're working for. You know, you, you, your career is complete. You know, you, you're the best player. You're on the best team. What more can you do? Yeah. And, and that 85 team, which is your last year in Los Angeles, and this goes back to something we were talking about earlier, when, when you go to Detroit and the, you know, the machinations go through the process and, and Mikhail and um, uh, Parrish end up in um, Boston. Boston. You know, that's 19, you know, 79 or 80, whatever year it is, yeah, 79, I think. And then all of a sudden, here you are. It's 1985. The Celtics have beaten you the year before mm-hmm. in the final. Um, but it's 1985. The Lakers have never beaten the Celtics in the playoffs. And it's your last series playing for Los Angeles. And you guys beat them. And you beat that front line that's, you know, Mikhail and Parrish, along with Bird, who was drafted right after you left. Um, tell me about that experience. That was something that was weighing on us and the franchise. You know, we had never beaten Boston. Uh, but, you know, you got to look at everything that happens. We, when I look back and we lost in 83 to Philly, 4-0, but we had major injuries. I got hurt. James Worthy broke his leg. Norm Nixon, shoulder separation. I mean, that was 50 points gone from my lineup right there. Right. And then the following year, uh, we won our first game in Boston and we had the ball with a couple of seconds left. I mean, we were about to win the second game in Boston and we got a turnover at the end. They ended up tying the game and ended up beating us in overtime. If we'd won that game, we'd been going back to LA with the two, three, two series. We'd had three games left in LA. We'd have wiped them out, you know, in LA. But right. before we got there, we had injuries. Injuries in 83 and 84 took us out. Um, 
And you know, Snowden crying about spilled milk, but when we had a whole team, nobody could beat us. We had a team, if we were whole, we would have probably won four straight championships, but we were not whole. Uh, I know the Celtics would disagree with it. I mean, me and Cedric Maxwell are good friends and he's on that Celtic team. He said, Bob, no way. I said, Brad, y'all couldn't have guarded us. We, I mean, y'all couldn't do it. You just didn't have, we lost all our firepower in those two years, 83 and 84. So we didn't have the same firepower to go against Philly and Boston in those years. But, you know, I said, you got the championship, can't complain. Nobody's going to write that so-and-so and so-and-so had injuries. They're going to look and say, you know, Philadelphia won 83 and Boston won 84. Case closed. That's where it is. But you were in that series, you're in the middle of it, you know the real deal. You know, you know the real deal. But, hey, that's the way it is. I mean, you, you see it now in NBA. You know, the team that can stay the healthiest is the one that's just, you know, is going to usually going to win. Right. Right. Um, yeah. And well, and, it, and it's interesting. Um, Pat Riley said about you in your L.A. years, uh, when we signed Bob as a free agent, it was the most pivotal move we made in my time in Los Angeles that was the move that really propelled us into being a dynasty type team. Obviously your relationship with Pat, on the one hand, he's not starting you. Yeah. On the other hand, you're winning rings with him. You're going to the championship, you know, series every year with him and, you know, kind of fast forward, not to skip over what we're about to talk about, but, you know, fast forward, you've been working for him, you know, down in Miami. I see you're wearing a heat shirt right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> obviously an interesting relationship on the one end, he's not starting you on the other hand, obviously there's a mutual respect for each other. Tell, tell me about your relationship with Pat Riley. Uh, Pat was a great coach in LA, in New York and in Miami. And he's been probably even a greater, uh, president and administrator. Uh, and I think my relationship, you know, like I said, I, I could have raised hell. I mean, when you look back at players that were in my position that went to other teams, like Allen Iverson said, I ain't coming off no bench. Uh, who else? Kamala Anthony didn't want to do it. He's doing it now in LA. But uh, I, did, I said, zip, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not going to destroy, you know, I'm not going to be a problem. This, this is what they, they heard in uh, the other teams, you know, Detroit and uh, Boston. I wasn't like that. You know, I heard words and I had to look it up in the dictionary. It said, you know, malcontent and a malingerer. I had never heard those words before. I said, what is that? What is a malcontent? What is a malingerer? I mean, I wasn't like that. I just did my job and... That was it to the best of my abilities. You know, if I was healthy, I played. If I was hurt, I didn't play. And you start hearing these things from Boston and Detroit. And, uh, you know, that, that hurts. You know, you, you can't fight back against the press. They say certain things and uh, you, you can't fight back. I mean, I'd, if I was a malcontent malinger, I would have done it in L.A. over all teams. But I didn't say anything. I just, I just did the best that I could when I was there. I kept my mouth shut. And I think keeping, keeping my mouth shut is what helped me get the job in Miami when Pat moved from New York. You know, he's, this guy's not a rabble rouser. I mean, 
he brought me on his staff right away. And I've, I've been with the Miami Heat ever since 95. This is the longest I've ever been in a spot in professional basketball, which has been good for me and my family. It's been yeah. great. Yeah, to make, think think about those five or six years in the late 70s where you're on like six different teams in six yeah. years, five teams, yeah. and all of a sudden you're with one team for a quarter of a century now. It's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Exactly. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, and then, and then real briefly, you go to the 76ers and I mean, that team is loaded with talent right now. It's Moses Malone in full. It's mm -hmm. Dr. J it's Barkley. It's Mo Cheeks. It's Bobby Jones. Again, <laughs> kind of the recurring theme in your, uh, in your career. Um, yeah. but it's, it's, well, tell me about your year in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, uh, I'm okay. Of course I was hurt that the Lakers didn't sign me back after we won the championship. Sure. But, uh, I had a chance to go to another top-notch team, which was Philly. And uh, I saw, I said, hey, look, we, we got a chance to win, win the East and play the Lakers in the championship. Injuries took us out again. Moses got a fractured orbit. Uh, Andrew Tony was having foot problems. He wasn't able to play. So we were missing two major scores right there. Right. Uh, um, they brought me off the bench in Philly, which Julius Irvin didn't understand. I remember Julius was talking to me, he's like, what is this? <laughs> you know, he didn't understand that. But, you know, I guess because I come off the bench four years in uh, LA, you know, they decided to do the same in Philly. And I couldn't understand it because our coach was Matty Gukas. Matty Gukas and I played together in Buffalo. Matty yeah. knew what I could do. He knew the firepower was still there. 30 didn't diminish my, my powers, you know, my shooting, my running. But uh, he decided to bring me off the bench. And like I said, I didn't cause no problem. I just, I just you know, I went with the program. And uh, we did the best we could until we got, I think we got to the Eastern Conference semifinals and we lost to Milwaukee. Uh, but, you know, losing Moses and Andrew Tony was a little bit too much for us. We couldn't, couldn't overcome that. Right, right. And so then, and then does Philly not re-sign you or do you decide, okay, this has been great, but I wanna, I wanna test the waters in Europe? No, I, no, I, I wanted to come back to Philly. Okay. And uh, they didn't talk. They weren't talking, and the coach, Dan Peterson in Milan, uh, got in touch with me and asked me if I would like to come to Europe to play. And my wife said to me, why are you doing this to yourself? You know, just go over to Europe and play and enjoy yourself in Europe. I took her advice. You know, I had already been on six, seven teams, you know, Milan was just going to be another team in another country, different language, culture and everything. I said, let me try it. I went over to Milan and, uh, you know, I liked the players on the team. Mike D'Antoni, who became a great NBA coach, was my point guard. Uh, we had a couple of national team Italians on the team. Uh, after a month of being over there, Philly calls me. They want me to come back to Philly. I did the Matumbo on him. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was enjoying myself in Italy too much. I saw right away, this was the team to be on in Italy. We were, you know, 
we were like the Lakers or Boston or Chicago. I mean, everybody wanted to see, and plus me come and help this situation for them too. We were uh, the, probably the most watched team in all of Europe. Uh, people couldn't get tickets in Milan when we went on the road, couldn't get tickets. And uh, I thought it was going to be there just two years. We ended up winning the Italian championship, the EuroLeague championship, and the Italian cup, something that hadn't been done. We won three championships. And uh, the, the major, the coach told me it was the first time he had ever seen a basketball team on the front page of their major sports paper, the pink paper, the Gazette della Sport. Because say like if you had 20 pages of sports, 18 of them are on soccer, because Italy is a soccer nation. They had the Milan team on the front cover of the Milan Gazette della Sport, because what we had done had never been done before. It was one of the most, you know, most enjoyable times of my basketball career being in Italy. And not only did we win that year, we won, we didn't win the triple crown the next year, but we won two of them. We won the Italian championship and the Euro cup uh, the second year in Milan too. So, I mean, it was, it was fantastic. I was in Milan for four years and a uh, weird thing happened there after we were so successful. Uh, I guess Milan decided I was, you know, getting too old. So they didn't sign me back. So I ended up going to a team a little bit further south for Lee. They had moved up from division two to division one. So they needed a, uh, an accomplished player. So they got me there. And uh, I ended up being in Italy for six years. And if I ever have to do a bio or anything, I mean, I have to tell the truth, those six years in Italy were my best years of my basketball life being in Italy for those six years. It was, it was just fantastic. The people were fantastic. The team was fantastic. The city was fantastic. It was, it was traveling all through Europe, playing all these teams, you know, playing Yugoslavia at the time. It was called Yugoslavia in Spain, Portugal, England, uh, Maccabi, Tel Aviv. I mean, we were all over the place playing in the European championships. I got to see Europe like I would have never seen it if I hadn't been on this Milan team. Travel was just was just great being over in Italy with this great oh. team. Yeah, I'm sure. And and that's also at the time when you're probably seeing the guys who would be part of that first and second wave of European players coming over to the States. Yeah. So guys you're playing against uh, in, you know, championships and all that are then, you know, kind of coming over and, and I'm, I'm assuming like the Drazen Petrovic and guys like that. Yeah. Drazen Petrovic, uh, Sabonis was in Lithuania. Sure. Uh, Tony Kukoc was in Croatia. Uh, I mean, they had uh, Dino Raja. I think Dino was in Croatia. I think, I mean, these are players. I saw these young players in Europe and I said right away, I said, man, these guys can play in the NBA. And they eventually went to the NBA and made some noise playing over there. And you oh, see, yeah. you know, the league now, you know, you've got European players, you know, because before people didn't want to deal with European players. They thought they were just too soft. But, you know, that wasn't the case with this group that I saw when I went to Italy during that time from 86 to 92. You, you know, they, these guys paved the way for the Luka Doncic's and 
uh, uh, Dirk Nowitzki's, the guys that came later. These guys sure. were very good. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, and it's and it's interesting. So you have this massive amount of success in in Italy, uh, winning multiple Italian league and Italian cup and European championships. And I couldn't help but think, looking at your career in aggregate from when you came out of North Carolina through the end in Italy, you know, obviously just recently Tom Brady retired. And I was saying to somebody, Tom Brady had three Hall of Fame careers in one. He had those first three Super Bowls, which puts you in the Hall of Fame. Then he mm -hmm. had like a decade where he didn't win one, but the stats were off the charts with Randy Moss and Wes Welker. That's a Hall of Fame career. Yeah. And then the end, the last three with the Pats and then one in Tampa Bay. Uh, you know, they're only going to give him one yellow jacket, but, you know, he had three Hall of Fame careers. And I look at your career and, you know, you had the scoring championships and MVPs and Rookie of the Years and all of that stuff but you put up with a lot of very frustrating situations. Then you go to Los Angeles, you have this incredible run, four championship series in four years, two titles, a different role, but a critical role as evidenced by what Pat Riley and Magic Johnson say about you. And then you go to Italy and you have arguably the best career an American has had in Europe, as far as I can tell. Um, literally like three, I don't know if each of them would stand alone as a Hall of Fame career, but pretty damn close. And obviously in aggregate, you know, an unbelievable Hall of Fame career and capped off by being part of at the 75th anniversary of the NBA being put on the 75th, you know, the top 75 of all time list. Um, but it, it really is kind of a cool way to look at your career. It's pretty unique. There aren't many guys whose career looks like yours. I know it's uh, when I look, when I look back, it's like if I had to do a resume, Nobody, nobody in the world's got a resume like that. <laughs> you know, sure. and like, like you said, I think I think I I think I probably could have got the Hall of Fame, uh, like you said, the different segments from my NBA career. I think I could have made the Hall of Fame just for my European career because European career, I mean, two Euro League Cups. That's a difficult thing to win there. The Euro League, uh, the Italian League is tough. You know, at the time, I mean, it's just it's just. I led the league in scoring in one year in Italy. I was always in the top three or four in scoring, but the one year I led it in scoring and I was considered an old man, you know, but I wasn't, my body was still healthy. Uh, what matter of fact, we were the first team after we won that first Euro League championship, uh, we played in the first McDonald's Open. I don't know if you remember that. We had a McDonald's Open uh, where we we went our Euroleague team we came over to Milwaukee and we it was the Milwaukee Bucks Phillips Milan and the Russian national team and uh, we played in that and that was a great experience too I think the NBA saw I mean I was 36 37 years old and we played Milwaukee and I think Terry Cummings was the premier power forward in the league. And he was guarding me, and I kind of, I kind of torched him in that game. You know, I kind of gave the NBA a little. You know, I kind of let them know just because you're over thirty, don't mean you're through. And right. the NBA is seeing that now with guys like LeBron, Camelo, uh, Chris Paul. Uh, guys, guys can play into their mid thirties, late thirties if they take care of themselves. And that's what I showed when I was in the league. When you turn 30, they were ready to, you know, put dirt over you and stuff. 
Right. Yeah, it's true. I mean, now I'll, I think, you know, people pay a lot more attention to diet and off-season training. You yeah. make enough money yeah. that you don't have to, you know, sell insurance in the off-season. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of guys are, you know, kind of following that path now. But yeah, back in the uh, 70s and 80s, they probably didn't appreciate it as much. Yeah. Um, that's cool. Well, um, it, so I get, and I guess I just, I want to wrap up, ask you a question about your heat career, and then also, you know, kind of read two quotes that I think just kind of nail it um, for you. Uh, with the heat, you, you serve as an assistant coach, um, and then you've been a scout. Mm -hmm. So you've seen, you know, the championships with Dwayne Wade and Shaquille, and then obviously Dwayne Wade with LeBron and Chris Bosch. Tell me about your experience, uh, with Miami, you know, aside from the fact that obviously you've got the relationship with Pat Riley and, and all that. That turned out to be a fantastic experience for me too, because, uh, you know, of course, Pat turned the team around that first year, you know, Miami Heat were not ever thought of as a championship or even a contender. And Pat came in and he turned things around right away. He ended up getting uh, Alonzo Mourning from the Charlotte Hornets and Tim Hardaway from Golden State. And that, that kind of turned our fortunes around. We weren't championship contenders yet, but we were one of the better teams in the East. And he kept building on that. And, you know, I, I felt I was a part of that, you know, working with big guys, uh, helping out with game plans, scouting and stuff while I was here. And I mean, then Shaq came in. When, before Shaq came in, the top part of the arena, they had curtains around it because only the bottom section, the bottom rung, would be full, but you couldn't fill it with the top. When Shaq came, everything changed. They took those curtains down. The, the arena was packed. His personality and game brought, you know, uh, the team to championship contending. And we, we ended up winning that one year. Dwayne came in, which is a great young player. Well, him and Shaq, they just everything just turned around. We won that thing in, uh, what was it? You have to correct me, 2006, I think the first one. Yeah, 06, uh, yep. 06, we won the first one. And then the amazing thing happened. Uh, they got LeBron. They got Chris Bosh. They got the big three and Dwayne was here. And the, the interest in the team was, off the chart, you couldn't get a ticket in Miami when those three guys were there. And, uh, you know, we ended up, I mean, we got there four straight years. Uh, we did a Laker deal, you know, we got there four straight years and we won two out of the four. That's not bad, you know, because it's, 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 it's hard to win in this league. It's very hard to win in this league. I mean, I mean, you see it now with the, the Lakers struggling now. They, they have three super players in Westbrook, LeBron, and Davis, and they can't win. Everybody can't win with uh, three super players. I know, you know, the template has been Miami, you know, with those three guys, LeBron, Dwayne, and Chris. And I think everybody's trying to do that now, but that's, that's not going to guarantee you uh, a win. But, you know, I was happy that I was able to be a part of that. Uh, you know, when I look back at my playing days, I got to the championship four years in a row. 
And here in Miami, I've been in the championship five times. So as a coach, uh, I've been in the championship series nine times as a human being. Who does that? Right. <laughs> I feel I feel fortunate. You know, you know, you got to feel fortunate to even be in one championship. I've been in nine. I mean, I can't imagine what Bill Russell must be feeling. But I've been in nine championship series as a player and a coach. Uh, it's it's just just been a fantastic career for me. Yeah, that's awesome. And that doesn't even include all the championship series in, uh, in Italy too. I mean, yeah, so. yeah. You got to count. You got, I mean, I was at the hall of fame and they had my bio and I was sitting next to Lenny Wilkins and I said, they don't have any of my Italian stuff in here. And Lenny Wilkins looked at me and said, Bob, you get with them right away. That counts too, man. You know, so I told them and they added my European stuff along with my NBA stuff and, you know, just piles up, you know, the, the accolades, the championships. It's just, you know, it's just great. Yeah, that's cool. Like I said, man, the, the three, it's almost like the three different pockets. It's, it's pretty cool when you add it all up. Yeah. Um, well, so I, I wanted to, I wanted to close with, with two things that really kind of struck me. Um, at your Hall of Fame induction, uh, Jack Ramsey, your first pro coach, gives your introduction speech. He, of course, also a Hall of Famer, you know, after his career where he, among other things, won with Portland. Um, he said, you're the most versatile offensive big man he's ever seen. You could shoot from the outside, you could rebound. You were a shot blocker, shot blocker even had four assists per game uh, for a couple different seasons. Um, and you brought in intensity, very competitive, always full effort, and yet poised and calm. It's probably, you know, the ultimate compliment you can get from a coach, right? You bring it on every level of the game and, yeah. oh, by the way, you know, the right demeanor. Yeah. And then, and then I thought this was, this was great. This is when he was a coach. Bill Russell um, said, Bob McAdoo is the greatest shooter of all time, period. Forget that BS about being the greatest shooting big man. He's the greatest yeah. shooter of all time. <laughs> I remember that. I remember that. That's, that's. Uh, somebody needs to talk to some of these announcers now because they never add the older players in that. And I give it to, hey, Stephon Curry and Clay Thompson, they are, they are the best long-range shooters I've ever seen in this game. Right. But when you get to top of the key on the end of mid-range and stuff, I think I can – Talk junk now. I know I'm an old man. I can talk. I you got to put me in there too, because that's one thing people don't talk about. The one year that I led the league in scoring, my MVP year, uh, I led the league in scoring and I led the league in field goal percentage, and that's shooting jumpers. Nobody ever talks about that. Usually, right. field goal percentage champion is a guy like Shaq or Artis Gilmore that's getting dunks all game long. I, hardly, I didn't hardly have that many dunks. You know, my stuff was jumpers from 15, 20 feet. And um, I think I ended up shooting, you know, 55, 56% for the year and won the field goal. I got, I got the plaque at home. I won the field goal percentage championship after winning. I mean, who, do, who does that now? Right. Yeah. Yeah. For, for a big man inside for a center, the fact, I think I saw that you over 50% of your shots were from outside at, le yeah. at least in a couple of those years yeah. and still leading with, you know, both scoring, but also percentage wise. Amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
Okay, well, Bob McAdoo, I have to tell you, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, fascinating going through, you know, the arc of your career, talking about your days in, in high school in North Carolina, and obviously the success at uh, Vincennes in North Carolina, the wild ride of your NBA career, scoring championships, MVPs, titles, the run to Europe, the, the post-playing career with the Miami Heat uh, as both an assistant coach and a scout. Uh, it's been fascinating hearing all your stories, and I really appreciate you coming on to Chasing Hardware. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time. Tonight, it feels like life. Life is like you. Life is like